the Bible. Are you intimidated at the thought of reading such a complicated book? Do you find it daunting or delightful or both? Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. The Bible book club, where we read every word of this great book and then study it together. Here we are continuing in Exodus with Moses. And last episode, Moses was doubting. He was worried about I instead of I am, a.k.a. God. And God overcame every objection that Moses threw at him, demonstrating his power. And then Moses finally comes around. He leaves and goes to Egypt like he was supposed to. Mm -hmm. And on the way, he has a really weird fight with his wife. There's a knife involved. Don't remind me. And when we close chapter four, Aaron and Moses, they get their first victory. And remember, Susan is keeping score. I'm going to keep score. On this thing. And the Israelites then believe and they bow down and they worship God. And it's this really sweet moment. Okay, so let's set it up for this week. The setting is going to change. Egypt is the setting for the scene for the next seven chapters. And it is a really stark contrast to the desert Moses left and will return to. Egypt, remember, was an advanced society with affluence, with poverty, industry, and with the oppression of millions of people. And all of it was under the control of one man, Pharaoh. The dialogue that we read will primarily take place between Moses and Pharaoh in the palace. And the palace court would have been super intimidating. It was expansive, columned, marbled, filled with wealthy, educated officials and soldiers. And Moses, however, would have been familiar with the palace because remember his first 40 years he lived there, but it's been 40 years since he left. And Aaron may have been super overwhelmed because we don't know that he would have ever had cause to be in there. At the time, This 83-year-old Aaron and 80-year-old Moses certainly wouldn't have appeared very threatening to anyone in the palace. Back then, being 80, was it the same as being 80 today? No, because they all lived to like 120, but still, you're not, I mean, they're dressed in shepherd's clothes. They have no attendance really with them. They're not really important They don't have armor or swords or anything. They're representing the slaves and they're walking onto, you know, a setting where they would have really stood out and definitely been stared at. You think they had wrinkles at 80? (laughs) I don't know. They were living in the, well, Moses was in the desert, so I'm surely thinking he had wrinkles. I I have wrinkles in my 40s. Exactly. (laughs) Different time. All right, let's talk about the characters because we've added a few. We have our protagonists, God, Moses, and now Aaron on Team Israel. And we have our antagonist, Pharaoh, on Team Egypt. So who was this Pharaoh? Well, first of all, we can ask, why does he not have a name? He's just Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's name is most likely absent because Moses was the writer. And because Moses was trained as a prince in all the ways of the royal court of Egypt, he probably followed the standard practice of his day by leaving the king, who was your enemy of your nation, in this case, the enemy of Israel, unnamed. That's fascinating because yes. that actually happens a lot in the Bible. Like Herod, don't they call them the well, same? Well, this was an Egyptian practice. They were, I guess, so arrogant that they just never named, gave their their enemies the dignity of a name. And But Moses was brought up as a prince, so he knew this practice. So he just calls them Pharaoh. The two top candidates for this Pharaoh are Ramses and Amenhotep II. 
Although Ramses is a much better name for a movie. Hello. Rambo. <laughs> well, no, I'm just thinking of, you know, the Ten Commandments. It, it was Ramses, that movie. Based on biblical text dating the Exodus, we will follow the theory that the Exodus happened around 1446 BC. And the Pharaoh that historically falls into this timeline is Amenhotep II. Another interesting additional proof for Amenhotep is that he survived the 10th plague. Let me explain. The 10th plague, which we will get to in 1115, Exodus 1115, specifies that the firstborn of all people from Pharaoh to the lower slave girl will die. Now, it is normal protocol for succession of kings in Egypt that the firstborn is the future king. Therefore, if the Pharaoh in Exodus was a firstborn, he too would die in the plague. But we know Pharaoh does not die. He survives the plague. Therefore, Amenhotep II, in order to qualify as a legitimate candidate for the Exodus Pharaoh, could not have been his father's eldest son. So how did he become the king if Listen, he wasn't the I'm oldest? I'm going to explain. He wasn't the oldest. Amenhotep II was not the firstborn son of Thutmose III, and we know this because it is documented. The original heir to Thutmose III, and this is written during the middle of his reign in year 24, was Amenemhet, who was called the king's eldest son. He was the older half-brother of Amenhotep, and he died before he could assume the throne. But before so the, the throne, plague. before the plague. But he died before the plague. Correct. So then this guy's the next one in line. But he's still the second born. He's not, not the, the first born. born. And so that's, that's why he how. doesn't die. Got it. He became king because of his older brother died. But he doesn't die in the plague because he's not the, he's first, not born. the first born. Yeah. And so that's just another small proof that perhaps the actual pharaoh we're talking about is Amenhotep. Now, let's talk about the scene. This scene is the beginning of the fight between God and Pharaoh over who has rights to the Israelites. Moses and Aaron are the messengers for God and Pharaoh's going to speak for himself. Now, it is Moses who makes the first move in chapter five. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness is to offer sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. All right, let's look at the this request. This request is from God. Remember, Moses is just his mouthpiece. And that's why all the commentaries say this is a really, this really is a fight between God and Pharaoh not Moses and Pharaoh. Now the request is a demand. There are no, if it pleases you, statements as in Nehemiah and Esther, other books in the Bible. This is a demand. It is also a little bit misleading. Are the Israelites escaping or just going to worship? And there's a lot of talk 
talk about this. Lots of discussion on why they asked to go sacrifice rather than asking to be set free. It was almost kind of like, I'm going to trick them. Yeah, I'm going to trick them. But to sacrifice is what God told them to say in chapter three, verse 28. Some commentaries say this was simply the opening dialogue to be negotiated with Pharaoh. And others say it wasn't a lie because Moses never says they're coming back. <laughs> it's it's just, just says, let us go. Sacrifice. Mis- yeah. Misleading. Now, unfortunately for Pharaoh, he arrogantly rejects the God of Israel. He could have spared his own life, actually, and his son's life if he just, you know, accepted this. But Pharaoh thinks he himself is a God and he doesn't know Israel's God, nor does he think Israel's God is worth his supreme attention. Yeah, I also notice a lot of eyes statements. Exactly. He's big on the eyes. The, but again, think of it from his perspective. The Israelites are at the lowest end of the social hierarchy. They are his slaves. Therefore, their God must be pitifully weak. To Pharaoh, this request seems totally out of line and it ticks him off. Pharaoh is insulted and he wants a fight. So Pharaoh throws the first punch. God says, let my people go and worship me. And Pharaoh says, my slaves will stay and work for me. Verse six, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. God, it sounds like the managers of my company. They are, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> they are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you each day just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Again, sounds like my company. No, just just, just, just. You're getting in trouble. (laughs) Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that is what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. All right, let's talk about Pharaoh's cruel consequences. They were a strategic political maneuver and our first glimpse at how hard his heart can be. Pharaoh is going to put an end to the Israelites idea that they can ever ask for anything. Pharaoh is not just rejecting God's command to let the Israelites go, he is countering it. In one mandate, he does three things. He makes the worker's life more miserable and he beats the Israel overseers who have a longer standing leadership over the Israelites than Moses. 
And that drives an immediate wedge between the Israelite leaders and Moses. It is clearly all of Moses's fault. Targeting Moses was brilliant and warranted. He's the new guy on the scene. Now, Pharaoh may know of Moses. He may have even heard that he was raised and educated in the palace. Remember, we don't know how old Pharaoh is. We don't know if he was born before or after Moses left the palace, but he probably had heard about him at some point. And he may have astutely realized that there, even though Moses looks like the rest of the slaves, he may have astutely realized that there was a little more to this man than the average Hebrew shepherd. Pharaoh's strategy succeeds. The fickle, forgetful Israelites turn on Moses. But what Pharaoh does not realize is that this is far from over because his adversary is not a lowly shepherd with high ideas. His adversary is God. And Pharaoh starts the fight with a painful punch to God's people. Verse 20, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelites reject Moses and God again. The score is now two to one. The Israelites have rejected for the second time. They've only trusted him once. And Moses is devastated. In his very first assignment and interaction with Pharaoh, he is made to feel like a failure again. However, this time, rather than running to hide in the desert, Moses runs to God and Moses prays. That is so good. When you feel rejected when you feel like you failed instead of trying to hide run to God and, and this pray. is this is Moses baby steps you know okay he still feels rejected he's still devastated but he's learned I can't hide and if we only learn one little lesson at a time it's okay because we're gonna see how Moses is gonna grow over the next 40 years <laughs> another 40 years verse 22 Moses returned to the Lord and said why Lord have you brought trouble on this people Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. Remember the first action Moses took against the Egyptian oppression. He did it on his own without God. He impulsively killed an Egyptian slave driver. He realized it was wrong. He didn't know what he was doing and he just ran. He ran from his people. He ran from God. This time though, this was not his plan. It was God's plan. He's merely the vessel through which God is speaking. And the point here is that Moses has learned a valuable lesson. When you do God's bidding, you have God's backing. This rejection was not his mistake. He does not have to hide. This is God's plan. And the next move is God's move. So he turns in frustration and cries out to God. And that's what we need to do. And that's my Bible bender for this week is that if you will just stop and pray and our church has these little bracelets that they say pray first and how silly is it that I have to wear that thing sometimes to remember that and even sometimes still when I'm wearing that thing I get to the end of my day and I'm like oh why didn't I stop then because we're so busy and we're going through our day and doing whatever we do but if I just stopped to pray things could have turned out differently because and we do have same. patterns we're going to see this in him of weakness 
And it's in those patterns of weakness that we react versus turning to God and be redirected. Yeah. And you mean, no matter how many lessons you learn, you might still fail and then Mm -hmm. come. But it's just the important thing is eventually do you come back, right? Right. And do you come talk to him about it? So what do you do whenever you make a mistake? Do you sulk? Do you try to hide? Do you try to go uh, into obscurity? Uh, Or do you pray? And do you spend some time with God to try to figure out what is the wisdom he's trying to impart on you in that moment? And when you're doing God's work, let's say trying to serve a surly, suffering coworker and they reject you. Do you give up? Do you turn back to God in prayer, asking them to go before you and soften their heart, give you better words and give you better ways to teach them? I will raise my hand right now and <laughs> I say- thought you. I, <laughs> I thought of you. I thought of you in this question because we've shared about that. <laughs> I, I wish I had, but I didn't. And so I'll do it better next time, God, I promise. So Moses is clearly frustrated and he's blaming God now. Even in his prayer, he asks why. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to question God. It's okay to wrestle with God. We've had great examples of great men in the Mm -hmm. Bible who have done that very thing and gone on to greatness and to lead people to great things. But how can we all do it quicker and faster and not question as much? Even if you do, what are you frustrated with? How have you cried out to God? And then think about that and what you've seen him do in response to that. How has he answered those questions? Well, God answers with a promise and a plan. Chapter six. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant." Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Well, if you were with us in season one, when we did Genesis, you will remember a lot of those words that were said to the patriarchs. And now we hear them to being said by God to Moses. God reiterates his promise. Pharaoh will let them go. God reminds Moses of who he is, the God of your fathers, the God of Israel. And God reveals more of his plan. I am going to free the Israelites. I am going to judge Egypt and I will bring you to the promised land. And Moses responds by obeying. Verse nine, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Oh, here we there go. He goes, <laughs> there he goes. Excuses like again. I said, he's just a little fragile. 
discouraged, Moses doubts again. Moses reverts to self-deprecation. It is a pattern for him. He reiterates two of his arguments with God from chapter four. In four one, Moses said, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And in 4.10, Moses said, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And he says that same thing again in this one sentence. If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh, since I speak with faltering lips? Moses is trying to talk his boss out of this leadership promotion. (laughs) Please find someone else. He thinks he's not the man for the job. I think it's also interesting that not just Moses is discouraged, the people are discouraged. Yeah, the Israelites, but I can't blame them. Verse nine, I can't blame them, but I think also a leadership lesson. When the people are discouraged, even if you are discouraged yourself, and you might be, I, I sometimes am too, but you've got to lead them with more confidence because they're not gonna follow you Well, if not. And we have to remember, when you fear people, it is a sign that you care about people. You want to please them. And Moses has a million people suffering in front of his very eyes. And and when their leaders turn on him and they look to their leaders because the, the, the overseers, there were Israelite overseers and then over them there were Egyptian slave drivers. When the overseers come to him and say, this is your fault, we are suffering more. That suffering is very real to him. Mm-hmm. He sees that. Mm-hmm. His people are being worked to death now because they're literally having to gather their straw and work all day. So he feels that. He cares for them. He's afraid of them, but it's because he cares and he and he feels the weight of the burden he carries and that weight makes him feel like he's not the man for the job. You're human but, after all. You, right. How could you not? Yeah. Right. But I do think that if I was God talking through me, I might have a little more confidence than he has. I hope I would, but maybe I would. I would see those people and it would kill me. I mean, it would just kill me knowing that like fathers and mothers are dying and can't feed their children because they're being worked to death and the children Children are being put into labor. I mean, I just imagine them being thin and destitute. It's got to be really ugly. And they're living in poverty too. I mean, on top of it. So, but what Moses has forgotten is what we learned in the last episode, that God is Yahweh, the I am. And the I am eclipses all that I am. Well, I guess that begs the question then, what is the the pattern in your life that um, takes you off that path where you question, is God I am or not? Or am I the person for am this I job? The for the job. <laughs> you are if God has got, if you have his backing. Yeah. Um, so let's listen next episode because God is going to respond to Moses, even though Moses doesn't think he's the man for the job. He's going to throw the first punch at Pharaoh. Moses is going to, yep. Give What's him a the right score, hook. Susan? Well, we're two, one. The, the, they've rejected, the Israelites have rejected Moses more than they believe him, but we're going to even that up. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.